Welcome to a community-supported and guest-produced edition of the Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from The Sam Cedar Show, Ring of Fire, and Tom Hartman. the Clinton wing of the Democratic Party exercising a lock on the party's economic policies argued that the economy could achieve sustained growth only if markets were allowed to operate unfettered and globally. Overcoming protests from labor unions, a traditional constituency like the, the Clinton administration vigorously supported free trade agreements like NAFTA and agreed to China's admission into the World Trade Organization. If there was damage to workers in the Clinton camp proposed dealing with it after it occurred through wage insurance, for example, or worker retraining and other safety net measures. And you should also know when they try when they passed NAFTA, one of the big cells, and this was uh, the Republican led uh, Congress at the time. One of the big cells that the uh, Clinton administration was pushing was this notion that we can retroactively. Add labor and environmental restrictions uh on these uh, other countries we're doing business with when it comes to NAFTA, specifically uh, Mexico in this situation. And the theory being that these uh, labor standards and environmental standards would even out the playing field so you wouldn't get this uh, giant sucking sound that Ross Perot was talking about. With corporations moving down to Mexico, exploiting the labor there, leaving a lot of Americans without jobs. Of course, that's exactly what did happen. And on top of uh, destroying the manufacturing base in this country, which some people might argue would have gone anyways, but we didn't have to make it so much easier. You also uh, created a uh, huge rush of illegal immigration from Mexico because you allow these uh, major uh, corporations to go in there, particularly the agricultural ones, kicks the campesinos off their land, they go to the city. They can't find enough work there because these uh, multinational corporations still paying a quarter a day or whatever it is. They got no other choice but to head north. So the corporations that stick around in America get their cheap labor. Either they get it here or they get it in Mexico. And then, of course, what ended up happening is uh, because of uh, the China's involvement in the WTO, they abandoned Mexico. <laughs> head to China where they could pay half the, uh, the, the daily salary they were paying in Mexico. Peace goes on to say this approach coincided with a, periodic, uh, with a period of economic prosperity. Low unemployment and fall, uh, falling deficits. Over time, this combination called Rubenomics, after the Clinton administration's Treasury Secretary, became the Democratic establishment's accepted model for the future. This is the DLC's push. Not anymore. A party faction has been, uh, that has been powerless in the Democratic Party, the economic populace, is emerging and strongly promoting an alternative to Rubenomics. The populace argue that the national income has flowed disproportionately into corporate coffers and the nation's wealthiest household, households, and that the imbalance has grown worse in recent years. And this is true, folks. They want to rethink America's role in the global economy. This is why when people say uh, 
Clinton was one of the best Republican presidents we've ever had. This is what they're talking about. Clinton uh, appealed to that corporatist wing of the Republican Party, which, of course, is now under siege from its uh, fundamentalist wacko wing. We are at a point where the Reagan era might finally be over, including the eight years of Bill Clinton, said Jeff Foe, a fellow at the Economic Policy Institute. This is good news, folks. The split is not over the damage from globalization. Mr. Uh, Mr. Rubin and his followers increasingly say that globalization has not brought job security or rising incomes to millions of Americans. The economic populists argue that the trade agreements themselves are the problem. They cite several studies showing that more jobs shifted to Mexico as a result of NAFTA than were created in the United States to serve the Mexican market. Barney Frank, congressman from Massachusetts, soon to become chairman of the powerful House Financial Services Committee. You know, one of the other things that you've been fantastic on, Barney, is recognizing and sounding the alarm like another Massachusetts resident, Paul Revere, about the fact that our country is being sold to, in many places, our putative or future enemies, people like China and, and the Mideastern dictators who are now making the loans that are fueling this president's stay at the mall with our children's credit cards. No question. Look, George Bush made an error that I, I don't see how anyone can defend it. Here's what happens. He comes to office in 2001, and people forget the economic situation was so good, and the budget policy, you know, it was a bipartisan one. It was a Republican Congress and, and a Democratic president. But let, let, me re point, let me remind people, before you go on, that Bill Clinton left us a $5.6 trillion 10-year surplus, and this administration has, has turned that into a $5 trillion deficit, a $10.6 trillion shift in wealth. Absolutely right. And that, by the way, people talk about the savings deficit. We're not saving enough. The swing in the federal government from surplus to deficit is the reason we have a savings deficit, and that's the reason why we've had to suck in all this money from China and, and other places. And, you know, people can forget, in 2001, Alan Greenspan was worried that we were going to pay off the entire national debt and the Federal Reserve wouldn't have a good tool for managing interest rates and managing uh, the economy. And so what George Bush said was, we're going to cut taxes. Now, Democrats wanted to cut taxes, too, but not by nearly as much as George Bush. We did. We wanted to make it more of a middle-class working-class oriented tax cut than a wealthy one. Bush got the Republicans to go along, but then something happened, and here's where I most fault him. I disagreed. I thought he wanted to cut taxes by too much, but it was within a margin in which you could argue. Then came September 11, 2001. And as a result of that, of course, we have spent hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars that we hadn't anticipated. We've had a war in Afghanistan, which I voted for, a war in Iraq I voted against, homeland security, all of those extra expenses. The fundamental error of George Bush was that having decided on a level of tax cuts before September 11th, 
He did not alter that. Now, no president in history has ever decided before him to deal with a wartime situation is to cut taxes. He's gone ahead with the tax cuts and put us in the worst fiscal situation we've ever been in. But, but Barney, explain to our listeners how this is a national security issue, uh, giving the Chinese basically control over the American economy. It's somewhat constrained by the fact, you know, it's the old story that if I lend you $1,000, I have influence over you. But if I've lent you everything I own, you have influence over me because all of a sudden i got to worry about your health. And, uh, you know, the Chinese can't be too reckless in doing anything bad about America, but they do have, along with others, you know, we, we used to say, let me put it this way, we used to say, I remember 20 years ago, well, we have a big national debt, but we owe it to ourselves. That's no longer the case. Our debt is owed overseas, mm. and we hope that self-interest on that part is going to keep them from doing anything terrible. But if they were to decide that they wanted to shut down on loans to us, and, you know, what's the scenario? Well, suppose Taiwan decided to do something that the People's Republic of China didn't like. Taiwan's a democracy, and we supported Taiwan. We could find ourselves in a real bind because the Chinese care so much about Taiwan, they're so emotional about it, that even if it might hurt them a little bit, if it hurt us as well, they might go ahead with it. So, yeah, we are in this serious bind. And what would they do? Well, they could just stop lending us money. And they what could, would happen? They could make us pay back, you know, the lending thing is a constant thing. They could call their loans. Well, what would happen to the American citizen, the typical, like, homeowner? If well, what happened? would happen would be American interest rates would probably have to go way up to start because, you know, we need to borrow this money. We are spending it, and we have to keep paying our debts, and we pay our debts in part by borrowing. If the Chinese stopped lending us money, we'd have to find that money somewhere else, and the only way you do that is by much higher interest rates. At the very least, it means a serious recession in America. Because, A, we couldn't afford to buy as many things as we are when we weren't being given the credit. And, B, to bring in some flow of funds to keep meeting our debts, we'd have to raise our interest rates. So combination is a serious recession at the best. I know that the Democratic Congress has plans to try to reinstitute pay-go budgeting, where you can't say you're going to spend something unless you say also where the money is going to come from to pay for it. And that, I think, is a very common-sense measure that makes a lot of sense to all of us who do a household budget for our own families. But what about the other side of it? What about the tax policy side of it specifically? Um, well, actually, Rachel, that's, you know, the Republicans, if you ask them, they said, well, yeah, they're following pay-go on the spending side. This is the biggest difference between us and them. We are going to apply that to the tax side as well. Hmm. Their view, see, they're perfectly willing to cut spending in most cases. Of course, they want to spend, you know, lavishly on the military. But, uh, you know, one of the things that's happened, they've just decided, by the way, is an example of, of the budget pain they're inflicting on America. The biggest appropriations bill outside of the defense budget is for the Departments of Labor, Health and Human Services, and Education, the major domestic programs. They wouldn't pass that bill in the House this year because they knew that as a result of their budget policies, we're going to have to cheat on education spending. We're going to have to cut back on health research. We're going to have to cut back on occupational uh, training for people who've lost their jobs. And so they said, we're not going to do it until after the election. Now, since we've taken control of both houses, they said, you know what? This bill is going to be such a lousy thing to do. It's going to be so inadequate in meeting basic needs that we're not going to do it. We're just going to kind of pass over it and leave it to the Democrats to do. So that's, they will probably want to cut the spending side. But what Nancy Pelosi has said, and uh, she really deserves an enormous amount of credit for the fact that we won in November, and, and I think her plans going forward are very good ones. She's going to apply. This is the special difference we're going to make. We're going to apply PAYGO to the tax cuts. 
worthwhile. And, and, and them pushing that, those spending bills over into the new Congress means that, I mean, they're obviously, strategically, it seems like they're trying to screw up the whole idea of the first right, they want to they, they created a bad situation and they want us to be blamed for it. Yeah, exactly. To take up all the time from the initial Congress. If you want to be my friend, you want us to get along, please do not expect me to wrap it up and keep it there. The observation I'm doing could easily be understood. A cynical demeanor, one of us misread. What do you know? It happened again. When we start a means You last to get somewhere Some hearted notice Friendship is an end What do you know It happened again It's a pleasure to welcome Paul Krugman, professor of economics and international affairs at Princeton University and op-ed columnist for the New York Times, here to speak about his uh, recent piece in Rolling Stone magazine, The Great Wealth Transfer. Welcome to the program. Good morning. Uh, now, uh, in the piece, you uh, argue that um, though by some measure the economy is growing, it is not um, benefiting uh, most Americans. What, what, how do you account for this discrepancy? Well, I mean, just by the, the math, sound like Carl Rove there, uh, according to the math, uh, what's happening is that uh, there's been a big shift of income up to the top, up to the top couple of percent, actually a lot of it to the top tenth of a percent, the richest people in the country. Um, and that shift has been so large. The slice of the pie that's been going to the people at the top has, has grown so much that actually even though the pie is growing, uh, the amount of stuff that's available for people in the middle is is going nowhere uh so it's it just and and why that's happening is i think it's a lot of different things but basically it has it comes down to a political climate that that has tilted the balance of power very much against working americans now i mean when we talk about uh, a good economy or a bad economy i mean that is an incredibly uh, a subjective perspective isn't it because uh there are people i mean obviously george bush is going around saying that the, the economy is going gangbusters it's uh that growth in in and of itself uh constitutes a good economy but um it, it really has to do with how you define it as to what uh, the economy is supposed to do uh when it's doing well well, yeah. Now, in the, in, in the past, it didn't matter because it was all moved in the same direction. You know, and if you go for most of the uh, most of the 60 years since World War II, when the unemployment rate went down, uh, when the GDP growth was positive, you also saw uh, workers' wages going up. You saw the income of the typical family going up. The point is that now that's not happening. If you only look at the numbers that are supposed to tell you how the economy as a whole is doing, if you look at the unemployment rate, you look at the growth in, uh, in gross domestic product, the numbers look pretty good. Um, but if you look at the things that tell you how most people are doing, like the purchasing power of workers' wages or the income of the median family, uh, or you just look at the polls where people are asked, you know, how is this economy? Uh, they say, actually, it's pretty bad. And that's a, you know, this is different. This is something where we really are getting to a situation where uh, the, the, the shift, the, tra the wealth transfer is so big that 
what's what's happening to the overall numbers just doesn't tell you what's happening to most people. Now, now, aside from the fact that um, you know you've got the majority of Americans saying the economy is uh, fair to poor, uh, what what else uh, are there? Larger, more transcendent reasons as to why this um, growing inequality is a bad thing? Well, uh, I think there's a couple of things. One is uh, that I mean, even beyond the dollars and cents, it, it really affects the shape of your society. It affects the uh, uh, one of the things you can see uh, if you look at people who've been Sociologists have found that, that uh, trust has been declining for the last several decades. The number of people who say that mostly you can trust other people has been declining, and there's a lot of evidence that that's tied to inequality. If people are not living in the same world, if uh, the rich are living in their mansions and, uh, and commuting by helicopter, which is more common than you might think, uh, and the, uh, and while other people are, are struggling with poor schools and, and, uh, and having a hard time of paying for a house, then you're going to have a situation where people don't feel that they're all in the same boat. Uh, it warps the political process. I mean, it, the, the, uh, when we talk about the, the corrupting influence of money in politics, when we talk about K Street and all that, uh, those are symptoms. Those things are coming from somewhere. There's, I, you know, people haven't changed. It's not as if, Modern politicians are worse than the politicians we had 30 years ago. What's happened is the amount of money sloshing around is so great that it's it's a much bigger corrupting influence. You go down the list. It's it just this is a when we talk look back at at uh, some of the good things that we had. We weren't there were a lot of problems with some of the good things about American society in the Ozzie and Harriet era. A lot of it came from the fact that we were truly a middle-class country then, and we are not now. You know, uh, Tom Hartman, who is a, uh, a fellow uh, uh, talker on uh, Air America Radio, has a book out called Screwed, where uh, one of the things he argues is that this, um, the, 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 the attack on the middle class, the redistribution of this wealth upwards, is a conscious effort to diminish uh, the middle class's political um, uh, will and authority. I mean, uh, you talk about the Ozzie Harriet uh, days, where you also had the, the subsequent uh, middle class essentially then uh, taking more uh, and, and speaking more and uh, becoming more active in the political arena. Do, do you think that this is um, that the you, you talk about the political corruption as a uh, as a symptom of this inequality? Do you also think that it's possible that there is a, 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 a it flows the other way? That yeah, it, it goes. It, it's really clear if you start to look at the long sweep of things it, that it. It, the, the thing flows both ways. Um, if you ask, you know, what, what happened? Uh, give me my long thing. If you, if you were looking at what Franklin Roosevelt did, uh, he created a bunch of institutions, and with you know, he and a lot of other people created not just things like Social Security, but also a strong union movement, a lot of protections for workers' rights, uh, all of which had the effect of institutionalizing a lot of working and middle class power in the system. Uh, what happened? What's starting in the 70s uh, was that the there was a concerted effort by right-wing think tanks, uh, business organizations, to both to gain influence in Washington and to dismantle those institutions. So what happened is that really over the past 30 years, they've slowly been um, disassembling the house that FDR built, and it's it's uh, you can really you can see it. It's actually uh, to a large extent deliberate. Uh, political strategy that that originated in in the 70s. And, and, and when you talk about in your piece um, that as a nation we've experienced the death of outrage in terms of this inequality, um, 
I mean, talk about this notion. I mean, why why do you think that uh, death of outrage is there? And it, it, you know, is the theory that perhaps well, you know, if there is more economic anxiety amongst the middle class, they simply don't have the time or uh, to uh, to to express this outrage in some well, respects. I, I don't think you want to imagine that there's some all all powerful, all smart guys uh, sitting in a room and twirling their mustachios and saying, "Ha ha ha, we're going to get them." What you have is a steady drumbeat of propaganda coming from places like Heritage Foundation, coming from media organizations like Fox and the Wall Street Journal, that is ultimately driven by a, you know, really a, a look, put it this way, the, the uh, people have looked at the whole network of conservative think tanks, mm -hmm. play a big role in Washington. Uh, you might think, well, that must be lots and lots of different people. And it turns out that all of them have their funding base in about five uh, five foundations uh, created by billionaire families. So, I mean, so it's not a bunch of guys necessarily with twirling their mustaches. It's, a, it's about a half a dozen um, very wealthy families, the Scaifes, uh, the... Uh, the cores, uh, folks. Uh, uh, Smith, Richardson, Bradley. Yeah, they're, they're, and there's, now, they, you know, people have a great capacity for, uh, self-rationalization. So they're probably thinking to themselves, what we need is, a, a more incentives. We need a, a freer society where people can express themselves by making money and, and of course they've got intellectuals to tell them that what they're doing is good and noble. Uh, the effect is that they have, uh, disempowered uh, the the bottom 80 percent of the U.S. population, and that's a uh, uh, which then all looks to them, you know, smells to them like freedom, but it it uh, it feels like uh, like we're we're, we're losing uh, the our, our unity as a country to the rest of us. And 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 why do you think that there has been sort of less of a um, a realization amongst the American public that um, that this is not? I mean. Uh, this is not. I'm not, I'm not talking conspiracy here, but I mean, one would th is the problem that the American public does not necessarily uh, connect economic policy uh, and these type of broader uh, or uh, more, uh, uh, I guess, uh, ethereal issues with what they deal with on a daily basis. Uh, sure. I mean, that's very much. People don't. Uh, you you got imagine somebody. Uh, Working at working at Walmart, making seventeen, eighteen thousand dollars a year, really desperately uh, trying to make ends meet, very hard. Um, they know that they're in trouble. They probably don't realize that the reason those jobs pay so little is that um, we've had a strongly anti-union policy now for uh, twenty-five years. That we've had uh, the minimum wage uh, uh, steadily eroded by inflation with no compensating increases. That they. That the reason that they're that they can't afford health care is that we are the, the only advanced country that doesn't have universal health insurance. They, they, you know, people. Who's going to explain it to them? How many times, do you, if, if you're getting your news on the fly uh, from Fox or CNN or MSNBC, uh, where are you ever going to learn that? Right. I mean, I guess that's the point. Is that you know, it, it's more difficult for people, and then, of course, they have less opportunity to dig in deeper into the news because. Um, they're concerned about putting food on the table for their family.
Congressman Sanders, first of all, let me congratulate you publicly. What a great thing for America to have you moving into the Senate. I just can't, I, I can't think of anything better for this country right now. Well, thank you very much, Mike. Yeah. I appreciate that. I really appreciate the help we got, not only from people, obviously, all over the state of Vermont, who gave me a, a huge victory here, but the support we received from virtually every state in the country. Well, I know. It, was, it should have been overwhelming. As I watched your campaign from afar, the, the thing that I think I was most moved by, that they would always say Bernie Sanders connects with what people want to hear. It worked in Vermont. They love you in Vermont. 65% folks. I mean, you've been, you know, you've been their guy for so long. Why is it that your message of compassion and the message of taking care of the least of our society, why is it that politicians, Republicans and Democrats are so damned afraid to talk like that? Jesus, Mark, I, I, the answer is I don't know. I mean, I think, frankly, it's good politics. I mean, if I didn't believe it, I'd probably do it because it makes sense. I mean, there are two elements to it. Number one is, you know, I come from a background where my own family, we didn't have a whole lot of money. So for a start, I do understand what it's like when you have a hard time paying the electric bill or the phone bill and when you don't have a lot of money to do the things you want to do for your family. So I instinctively understand that. The second part of it is you've got to have the guts to stand up to the people who are abusing their power, people who have got to relearn that they are Americans and not just billionaires. I am, frankly, sick and tired of people who think that they are entitled to huge stock options as heads of large corporations while they're sending jobs in their company to China mm -hmm. uh, or to Vietnam or wherever it may be. They've got to rejoin America. I mean, I think there are two parts to the equation. It's not just spending money, but it's understanding that the wealthiest people in this country have an obligation. They are Americans. They've got to pay their fair share of taxes. They can't turn their backs when we have the highest rate of childhood poverty in the industrialized world. They can't go begging the Congress and say, oh, give us more tax breaks. I'm only worth $500 million. We can just barely get by. Help us out. I mean, that is obscene. Well, I mean, the thing that I have trouble with, you know, the folks in Vermont, aren't any different from the folks in most parts of this country. I mean, that you, it's, it's absurd to say that they, they're just some aberration in the way that they... Right, you are absolutely right. And so I wonder why it is that people won't buy into the Bernie Sanders approach to, again, caring about people who need care. There's nothing just warm and fuzzy about that. It's good for the economy. It's good for social structure. It's good for every part of our society. But you're able to deliver that message, and all of a sudden, the guy working in the the bank, mid-level management who has always thought himself as a conservative Republican all of a sudden says, okay, I see the connection. It doesn't hurt That's us. Right. It doesn't hurt us to move money from our treasury to people who need it because they put it back into the economy. Right. You're able to articulate that well, and, and I, I wonder, uh, has it just taken years to develop that nobody's paying attention to the message? Well, Mike, I think the first point that I want to agree with you on is, you know, I love Vermont. This is a great state. We have a great history. But what we're doing here in Vermont can be done, I believe, in every state in America. Now, I, I've been doing this thing in, in this small state for, you know, like 30 years. So people are familiar with what I believe in. And also I had the opportunity as mayor of the largest city in the state, Burlington, to show people how government, in fact, can respond to the needs of working people and low-income people. And you want to know something? Of all of the political accomplishments that I've helped bring about, you know what I'm almost most proud of? Two years after I was elected, we have elections here every two years. Two years after I was elected mayor, the voter turnout in the city of Burlington almost doubled. 
That's wonderful. And it was with caring for everybody, wasn't right. it? We can take care of everybody and everybody do better. Isn't, Mike, that, what, isn't that what democracy is? I mean, it's not, it's not as let's let the one half of one percent of the damn society do better. Let's let everybody do right. better together. Right. And I think the vast majority, maybe with the exception of that one half of one percent, most people think that's right. If you look, Mike, at many of the social indices, that exist between us and, and, say, Scandinavia or even some countries in Northern Europe, the American people don't even, I mean, cause, and, you know, you ask why this thing happens, why we're not doing better politically, a lot has to do with the media as well. How often do you hear on mainstream media the reality that the United States is the only country in the industrialized world that does not guarantee health care to all of their people? How often do you hear that? Mm, yeah, impossible to hear it. Impossible. How often do you hear that we have the greatest gap by far between the rich and the poor of any major country on earth. That when you have a baby in Europe, you get time off with pay. That in America today, our people are working by far the longest hours of any people in the industrialized world. Where you get encouraged. There's a vicious circle that goes on. I think when, and believe me, this is well calculated. When you have the president telling us and his friends the government is irrelevant government is the enemy government is bad why would you vote why would you participate in the political process if the leadership of this country tells you government is bad That's a great point yeah Manufacturing jobs have disappeared in the United States since 1998. Goldman Sachs estimates that 400 to 600,000 professional services and information sector jobs have moved overseas. The Economic Policy Institute finds uh, U.S. software producing industries fell by 128,000 jobs. U.S. Department of Labor actually has a program where they can reimburse you. If you got screwed because your job got moved overseas, over 1,112,775 workers have gone through all the hassle and all the paperwork and actually proved that they got screwed by globalization. In the midst of this comes Jim Dorn from the Cato Institute, Cato.org. Jim uh, is the vice president of academic affairs at the Cato Institute and the recent author of an article, China, Constructive Partner or Emerging Threat. Hey, Jim, welcome to welcome to the Tom Hartman program. Hi, how you doing? Just great. Great to have you with us. You write about uh, Hank Paulson, Henry Paulson going to China and this this whole um, very, very high-level diplomatic group. I mean, half, about half of Bush's cabinet just went to China. Um, in my opinion, and I'm guessing in your opinion, hat in hand. Uh, first of all, your take on that. Yeah, it's unprecedented to have such a high-level de- delegation uh, go to China, uh, including the Federal Reserve Chairman Ben Bernanke, uh, who usually doesn't get together that often with the uh, Treasury people. But uh, I think the the most fundamental thing that they were looking for was basically to improve long-run relationships with China. But, of course, the U.S. Congress isn't looking at the long run. They're looking at the short run. They're worried about the trade deficit, which is 
growing and uh, substantial. And we're going to $800 billion this year. And they're worried about, uh, you know, a number of other things with relations with China. So yeah. I think it was uh, uh, Paulson's taken a much different uh, uh, approach than previous people. He's, he's looking at this long-run strategic economic engagement uh, rather than short-run issues, uh, which I think is actually a good thing to do with China. Uh, but... Uh, Again, I think with the new Congress coming in, there's going to be a, a lot of China bashing. Uh, yeah. They want they want a much quicker results than uh, Jim. I think the one thing that you and I can probably agree on on this is that because of uh, trade policies and because of the the you know mind-bogglingly dumb uh, debt policies, here we have this eight and a half trillion dollar debt. China has so much of our debt that we we basically have to kowtow to them. We you know they they have us in a position where they could do a lot of damage to the United States if either a they just stopped buying our debt or b they started dumping it fast on international markets. Where, where we probably disagree is the statement that you make in in this uh, news release that you sent out. It says any missteps that that weaken the liberal global economic order and fuel economic nationalism will undermine a constructive US China policy of engagement. I agree it may undermine that policy and and China has the ability to do a lot of damage to us, but how do we save the middle class if we don't have some kind of economic nationalism? What's wrong with saying, "Yes, I want to protect the American workers. Let's do away with these insane trade policies and go back to the kind of trade policies that this country had for 220 years that built the middle class?" Well, of course, you know, the Democratic Party for a long time were, were much more of a free trade party than the Republicans. So they've just changed, you know, in the, in the recent future. Well, I'm not, I'm not putting this forward as a partisan argument. I am neither a Democrat nor a Republican. I just think that it's nuts. I mean, we, we here, the first tariff laws in the United States were passed in 1789. And we had a tariff on nails and on, and on metal products coming to the United States. And, and all of the federal government's revenue, I mean, all of the revenue that ran this government from from 1789 until the Civil War came from tariffs. From from the Civil War until World War One, it was two thirds of our revenue. From World War One to World War Two, it was a third of our revenue. And then Reagan, and then Bush, and then Clinton, and then Bush come along and say, "Ah, we don't need those tariffs. We don't need to to say, hey, if there's a dollar's worth of labor and a pair of shoes made in America, and only ten cents worth of pa- labor and a pair of shoes made in China, you can, you know, it used to be you'd have to say there's a ninety cent tax when you bring that into the country. So it costs you a dollar no matter where you make the shoes. So we continue to make shoes in America now under what you describe as liberal, you know." economic policies, which is how Europeans correctly refer to them. Here we call it globalization or internationalization. That 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 equalizing tariff is gone, and American workers are competing with Chinese workers at a tenth of the price. How can you defend that? Well, you know, we tried economic nationalism during the 1930s with the Smoot-Hawley tariff, which uh, brought tariff levels to historically high levels, and uh, we got the Great Depression out of it. So, I don't think that's the answer. Smoot-Hawley was passed two years after the Great Depression started. It was an attempt to mitigate the disaster of the Great Depression, and it was put forward by the Republican Herbert Hoover. It was passed in 1930, late 1930. Yeah, well, the Depression, uh, you know, lasted more than one year, up to 1929 to 33, and uh, the... The tariff did not help international trade at all. No, it, it absolutely didn't. Smoot, Smoot-Hawley took international trade, the United States exports and imports, broadly more than, more than cut it in half. But the flip side of that, Jim Dorn, is that it dramatically increased internal production inside the United States. If we're not importing things, we have to make them. 
Well, uh, it didn't uh, increase production much in the 1930s. The unemployment rate was historically high. It, uh, and it As was a, a consequence failure. of the Republican Great Depression. Yeah, but uh, the, the biggest failure besides the protectionism was the failure of the Federal Reserve, uh, which let the money supply decrease by about a third between 1929 and 33. But, but in any event... But Smoot-Hawley was not the only tariff that we've ever had. Smoot-Hawley was an increase in tariffs. We've had tariffs from the founding of this. We still have tariffs. I was looking yesterday at all of our tariffs. I mean, we still have... Bush is right now talking about dropping the tariffs on steel. Gee, we started a couple of years ago, 10 years ago, uh, the steel industry was on the ropes. It was dying. Bill Clinton says, okay, we're going to put tariffs on steel. Um, so now the Wall Street Journal on Friday, they had an article that said, well, now, you know, the steel industry is strong. So let's get rid of the tariffs. What? Well, you know, a tariff is simply a tax on imports, and it raises prices to U.S. consumers. So I don't think, uh, you know, if we wanted to fund the federal government today by tariffs, uh, we'd uh, we'd only be able to fed the federal government for a couple of weeks. Uh, it, it, it only raises taxes on U.S. consumers to the extent that it all, let me rephrase that, to the extent that it raises taxes on U.S. consumers, it also helps create good-paying jobs in the United States. I don't mind spending an extra buck for a pair of socks at Walmart if I can, if I know that somebody down the street from me, or me if I need a job, can make 15 or 20 bucks an hour making socks at the, at the, at the textile mill down the, down, down the street. But you know, was a, a lot of the products that we import from China are not, no longer even made in the United States. That's my point! And they would simply, we'd simply import them from someplace else to, unless we put a cross-the-board tariff on every product coming in. That's we what we should do. That's, that's what we did for 230 years, and it created the greatest industrial powerhouse in the world. Well, At what point was, are you guys going to say the, the last 30 years of, of, of taking apart a tariff-based uh, international trade system and going to these, you know, GATT, NAFTA, WTO, CAFTA, all these things, is, is a disaster and a failure? When are you going to acknowledge it? It's destroying the American middle class. Well, you know, before... 19, even before 1929, the share of the federal government in, in our gross national product was less than 10%. In fact, total government was less than 10%. So if we went back to that type of government, less than 10%, and we used some tariffs, that would be a different thing. But I'm not advocating tariffs as a way of funding the government. I'm advocating tariffs as a way of keeping production in the United States. Well, I... China primarily That's why they were used. Is a, China primarily is used as a uh, processing center for manufacturers all over the world. And uh, Right, but China protects their own domestic industry. If General Motors wants to sell a car in China, they have to pay a 20% import tariff into China. If China wants to sell a car in the United States, it's a 2% import tariff. What's wrong with that picture, and why do you guys support that kind of thing? Well, of course, that hurts the Chinese consumers. It doesn't hurt U.S. consumers, uh, and I'm against uh, tariffs across the board, so... That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to negotiate. So if you, get, if you get rid of all the tariffs across the board, that means that every country, in the, that, that our workers in the United States are, are competing with 6 billion people in the world, half of whom make less than $2 a day. How could we possibly have a middle class on that basis? Well, we're much more productive than those workers in the other countries. I mean, that's why U.S. workers are getting higher wages, because we're more productive. And uh, employment's actually grown in the United States. And our manufacturing industry is is, is probably the most productive in the world. Wages right have been stagnant ever since Reagan began his war on the middle class, Jim. You know that. No, what I'm saying is the productivity growth in manufacturing has increased. Sure, now. and that productivity has increased corporate profits, but it hasn't increased wages. Because we're competing with people in poor countries like China. Well, uh, my colleague Alan Reynolds has just done a book on this. Uh, this is a different question with respect to, you know, distribution of income and the increase in real wages in the United States. If you take into account not just wages but consumption, 
U.S. consumption has increased dramatically over over the last 20 years or so. Right, but we're doing it on debt. I mean, that's that, well, I people think, are again, borrowing you and against, I would agree that that's a problem. They're borrowing against their equity in their homes and yeah. uh, the stock market and so forth. Would you mind saying that again? Inside my hand, so I dig into my pocket, all my money spent. So I get deep up, still coming up with lint. So I start my mission, leave my residence, thinking how could I get some dead presidents? I need money. I used to be a stick up kid, so I think of all the devious things I did. I used to roll up, roll up, roll up, I used to roll up, roll up. I used to roll up, this is a hole up Ain't nothing funny, stop smiling You still don't nothing move but the money But now I learn to earn cause I'm righteous I feel great, so maybe I might just search for a nine to five If I strive, then maybe I stay alive So I walk up the street, whistling this Feeling out of place, cause man do I miss A pen and a paper, a stereo, a taper Me and Eric being a nice big plate of fist Which is my favorite dish But without no money, it's still a wish Cause I don't like to dream about getting paid So I dig into the books of the rhymes that I made So now it's a test to see if I got pulled Hit the studio, cause I'm paid in full Right now we're back with Congressman Bernie Sanders of Vermont Who was just elected to the Senate as an independent Who would be caucusing with the Democrats You know, I've watched you as a leader in Congress You've moved a time and time against, uh, against media consolidation. I mean, yeah. you paint the picture that, you know, in 1980, there were 50-plus organizations that owned the media in various parts. Now we're, we have five that own yeah. everything. Yeah. Uh, do, do, do you think you can make inroads into issues like the Fairness Doctrine or reverse yeah. the tele 1996 telecommunications? Yeah, and that's a major, major area of concern because, Mike, unless we get a handle on who owns the media, the fact that you're looking at more and more media consolidation. And the result of that is that people are not hearing diverse points of view. The major issues that face the American people, the disintegration of our health care system, the collapse of the middle class, our terrible 
trade policy is a growing gap between the rich and the poor. How often do you hear that on media? You don't. And, and you know what? i got to tell you something. Having lived with Air America for three years, trying to keep it alive, trying to keep it going, it's, it actually gets to the point, Congressman, where you have advertisers. They, you're blacklisted. Uh, from uh, from corporate America's advertisers because you want to deliver that message. Of course, but you shouldn't, Mike. You should take it as a as a badge of honor. Well, I do. I mean, it, it's it is important. I feel like what we've been able to do in the last few years is important. It is as look. I think in the Congress, though, in, in the House, we worked on this issue. The word is getting out to the Senate that you know what, talk radio matters, and it matters a whole lot. When you look at the Rush Limbos and the Sean Hannity's and all of these guys, they are political operatives for the Republican Party. And corporate America on Tuesday will invest in candidates. They'll make campaign contributions to Republican candidates running for the House and the Senate. And Wednesday, they're advertising on these shows because they see it as the same thing. Mm -hmm. And it is the same thing. Let, let me let me change change hats here. Let me talk about what you you've been able to do in leading Congress to lower the cost of prescription drugs. I loved when you took your constituents across the Canadian border because they could save on prescription drugs. Is that something you're going to push here with oh, the yeah. health committee? Oh Tell me what yeah, I am not a free trader. I mean, I think our current free trade policies have been a disaster for workers and the middle class. But it's interesting where free trade works well for the middle class, all of these conservative guys, these guys who love free trade, who think it's a great idea for companies to send our jobs to China, they say, oh, my goodness, we should not be able to bring prescription <laughs> drugs in from Canada. <laughs> by God, we can't do that. We can bring in lettuce from southern uh, Mexico. We have no idea what kind of pesticides they use. That's not a problem. We can't regulate a half a dozen major drug companies to make sure yeah. the products are safe. That's crap, obviously. So you think, it has, you think it has anything to do with the ninety million dollars that they've they've given to Republicans? Hey, Mike, I don't know. <laughs> I, I just don't know. But uh, of course, I mean that is exactly what the issue is, and it's laughable. So, so that's going to continue. That I will be an issue. Jumping in to the issue of this prescription party Medicare, so that we negotiate prices with the drug companies, and then what we want to do away is do away with the donuts, so you strengthen the benefits for our senior citizens and simplify that program significantly, making it a Medicare program rather than having 50 different plans out there that confuses everybody. Mm -hmm. Okay, so tell me, uh, you know, I represent so many people that have had, they've worked 30 years in companies and all of a sudden there's some federal judge that was appointed by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce that is now saying, well, we're going to take your pension program right. away from you, and everybody just says, well, I guess that's how we do things in America. Tell me what your plan is to try to protect pensions. It's a difficult issue. It's one that we've worked a whole lot on, and it's going to take a whole lot of work. My major concern is just what you were referring to, and I got involved in that here in the state of Vermont when IBM reneged on promises it made to its workers. We were able to get them to reverse it, but that's certainly not true with a lot of companies. The issue is that a lot of people have worked for companies for 20 or 30 years under the presumption that they were promised certain retirement benefits, they were going to get them. And then one day they receive an email or a letter from the company and says, sorry, we changed our mind. You're going to go into a cash balance payment and you're going to have uh, maybe 50, 60 percent of what you thought you would have. I think that that's very wrong. So the first issue that concerns me is to make sure that when promises were made to workers who worked for a company for 20 or 30 years, that those promises be kept. 
Yeah, I mean, if, if you look at it, I mean, you've got companies that receive, what, $100 billion in tax incentives every year to set up and maintain these pension programs. And then given the reality, you know, Congress really should have a say in it that we're giving you this break because you're, it's, it's quid pro quo. You're, you got it. You're giving, this, you're giving this break because you say that you're going to do these things. And hopefully you can move it back to where a, a, a person who's put 30 years of their life into a company and then they want to live their golden years in retirement with some quality of life where they're not working at damn McDonald's, you know, at uh, minimum wages. Uh, which brings me to the next issue, minimum wage. You know, 109th Congress failed to raise the minimum wage. We know why. They did it for the right reason. You had the Democrats that really did hold out for the right reason right. that, you know, hey, we want to do with it away with the state tax if you'll give us a minimum wage increase. I mean, you talk about cynicism. I mean, here are the Republicans saying, okay, we will raise the minimum wage. All you have to do is give $700 billion in tax breaks <laughs> to the wealthiest two-tenths of one percent of the American people. Can you believe that? So sick. It is. You know, when you when I hear you say those words, I, it really puts it in perspective of I mean, how sick it is. How, how cynical can uh, you possibly I think what you will see, I mean, this is an issue that Democrats have made as, as one of their two or three top priorities. It will happen. But the tougher issue is how, in fact, you create good-paying jobs, and we're not talking about 725 an hour, mm -hmm. good-paying jobs in the United States. How do you reform our disastrous trade policies? And we need a lot more discussion on that. In the last five years, Mike, we have lost 2.9 million good-paying manufacturing jobs. 20% of the manufacturing jobs in Vermont have been lost. And sometimes it's because of technology. Sometimes it is because these guys are shutting down plants and moving to China. So in the era of globalization, how do we create trade policies to protect the American worker uh, and not just the CEO of large corporations? It's a tough issue, but it's an issue that Congress has got to delve into. Current policies have failed. We need to rethink trade policies. This is a, a, a major turning point in the future of the Democratic Party. I mean, I, you know, I have, I've said many times before, I saw the Democratic Party as a means in which to stop the hemorrhaging uh, that was going on underneath the Republican Party. But if I start hearing more stuff like this, you know, it's guys like Sherrod Brown and Jim Webb and, uh, and Bernie Sanders and uh, uh, who, who really start to give me uh, encouragement about uh, where the Democratic Party is headed. Absolutely, because, you know, as important as uh, investigations of corruption are and, and the war... Well, that's all going to happen. That's all going to happen, and but... And that's, 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 you know, in the most cynical perspective, that's just simply self-interest. Right, that's self-interest, but the economic issues, These that's, are the ones that's what's going to affect everybody's lives. Exactly. Immediately. Exactly. And Jim Webb has a uh, piece, I, I'll tell you something. You, you can almost hear, I mean, you can almost smell from a distance the conservatives, the uh, the 
really the elite in this country poop themselves when they read something like this. And they pick up the Wall Street Journal, and this is in an op-ed by uh, one of the most, uh, really, I mean, uh, uh, how, do you, how do you attack this guy? You know, George Allen was so nervous about him that he, he actually had to attack what he wrote in a novel. <laughs> Jim Webb writes, the most important and unfortunately the least debated issue in politics today is our society's, our society's steady drift toward a class-based system, the likes of which we have not seen since the 19th century. America's top tier has grown infinitely richer and more removed over the past 25 years. It's not unfair to say that they are literally living in a different country. Now, does that remind you of what someone said back in the 2004 election? It's a guy we've had on this program many times before. He's, I got to say, he's still my front-running candidate for 08. When you hear uh, Jim Webb say it's not unfair to say that they're literally living in a different country, does that harken back to John Edwards' Two Americas? Does that harken back to John Edwards saying to Dick Cheney uh, in that debate, the Republican uh, Party values wealth over work. The Democratic Party values work over wealth. The top 1% now takes an astounding 16% of national income, up from 8% in 1980. The tax codes protect them just as they protect corporate America. When I graduated from college in the 1960s, the average CEO made 20 times what the average worker made. Today, that CEO makes 400 times as much. Trickle-down economics didn't happen. Despite the vaunted all-time highs of the stock market, wages and salaries at our all-time lows as a percentage of the national wealth. At the same time, medical costs have risen 73% in the last six years alone. Half of that increase comes from wage earners' pockets rather than from insurance, and 47 million Americans have no medical insurance at all. Manufacturing jobs. And listen to what uh, you had Hannity crying to Bill Frist about what uh, Democrats are going to do. Listen to what he says. This is number four. Senator, the first order of business is a change in Iraq policy. People are saying that they've got to start redeploying. Harry Reid says we need to redeploy. That means take them out of Iraq and move them. Uh, John Murtha has said the same thing in the House. You say you don't think it's going to happen. I'm just listening to their words. We now have Hillary Clinton saying health care is back on the table. Uh, let's see. Robert Rubin says the only way to help the economy is to raise taxes. It seems like everything Republicans warned the Democrats would do is now coming to fruition and endless well, investigation. Yeah. Well, here you go, Sean. Guess what? The American public heard you and they voted against the Republicans. Americans demand health care. Americans demand economic justice in this country. Harry Reid came out yesterday said they're going to ta they're going to they're going to provide a tax cut on middle class and that money is going to have to be made up somewhere just like uh the the deficit that we're dealing with and that means that the wealthy in this country and by wealthy we're talking people who are making over $250,000 a year they're going to have to start paying their fair share they're going to have to start paying an amount that's commensurate with the amount of benefit they get from this country. 
Do we want to do aptitude tests to make sure that all these wealthy people did it solely on merit? Did everybody start with no money? Give me a break. Manufacturing jobs are disappearing, uh, continues Jim Webb. Many earned pension programs have collapsed in the wake of corporate reorganization. And workers' ability to negotiate their futures has been eviscerated by the twin threats of modern corporate America. If they complain too loudly, their jobs might either be outsourced overseas or given to illegal immigrants. And you know what he's saying there, too? He's saying we have to strengthen unions. Because that is the way that workers' ability to negotiate, that's their ability to negotiate through collective bargaining. This ever-widening divide is too often ignored or downplayed by its beneficiaries. A sense of entitlement has set in among elites, bordering on hubris. When I raised this issue with corporate leaders during the recent political campaign, I was met repeatedly with denials and from some an overt lack of concern from those who are falling behind. I'll tell you something, folks. I mean, this is this is what we're experiencing in America. You know, when we talk about the blacklist that happened with corporate America in terms of Air America's programming, uh, you know, there is a certain amount of self-interest in that they don't want to uh, be advertising with us. I mean, that is the difficult thing about doing uh, commercial media. When you're saying that uh, many of the benefactors of commercial media are abusing the system. A troubling arrogance is in the air among the nation's most fortunate. Some shrug off large-scale economic and social dislocations as the inevitable byproducts of the rough road of capitalism. This isn't capitalism we're experiencing in this country, folks. This is profiteerism. Capitalism involves reinvestment. Plugging some of that money back into the into capital. And the nation's capital is the nation's infrastructure. It is the future of uh, our kids. It is education. It is health care. When you reinvest that money, it does not necessarily pay off dividends right then, but it's an investment in the future to maintain the future of this society. The true challenge is for everyone to understand that the current economic divisions in society are harmful to our future, he goes on to say. Well, there you have it. It should be the first order of business for the new Congress to begin addressing these divisions and to work to bring true fairness back to economic life. If it remains unchecked, this bifurcation of opportunities and advantage along class lines has the potential to bring a period of political unrest. Up to now, most American workers have simply been worried about their job prospects. Once they understand that there are and were clear alternatives to the policies that have dislocated careers and altered futures, they will demand more accountability from leaders who have failed to protect their interests. The politics of the Karl Rove era were designed to distract and divide the very people who would ordinarily be rebelling against the deterioration of their way of life. Working Americans have been repeatedly seduced at the polls by emotional issues such as the predictable mantra of guns, God and gays, abortion and the flag, while their way of life shifted beneath their feet. But this election cycle showed an electorate that intends to hold government leaders accountable for allowing every American a fair opportunity to succeed. 
Our government leaders have no greater duty than confront the growing unfairness in this age of globalization. National Organizing Director for the AFL-CIO and one of the energetic and articulate visionaries of the labor movement. He's been a frequent guest on this show. Stuart, thanks for joining us again on Ring of Fire. Thank you, Bobby. I really appreciate uh, you having me on the show. It's great to be with you and Mike, as, as always, and I really appreciate what y'all are doing for the country. Well, Stuart, it looks like you did a lot, and your organization did a lot for this country. I mean, I look at, you turned out 200,000 volunteers, mm -hmm. uh, raised 45 million plus dollars to actually create a change. Ain't it amazing what democracy can do? Yeah. And when you live it and breathe it and, and believe it and try to move it, yes, I think the country went through a sea change in November, and the labor movement did an awful lot. The AFL-CIO in particular did an awful lot. But I think people's eyes, uh, average folks' eyes all over America were opened by the excesses of this administration and the dangerous right-wing pressure that this administration was putting on the country and what's been happening to working folks and average, other average Americans in the six years that George Bush and his crowd's been running the country. Stuart, let's talk about the agenda. The labor movement has earned a place at the table. What are the key planks in the labor platform? What do you expect from the Democratic Party? Well, what we expect is what's best for America. You start with you got to raise the minimum wage. It's ridiculous that people can work full-time and only make $5.15 an hour, and that's less than $10,000 a year. You know, one thing that I see, hopefully, on your agenda is to take a look at the National Labor Relations Act. You've got to make it easier for organizing unions. And well, I was going to get to that, Mike. That's exactly right. I mean, you start with raising the minimum wage. You go to fixing the president's awful prescription drug benefit for senior citizens, which has been only a benefit for the pharmaceuticals. Then you've got to change the way we do trade so that we make trade fair, not free, so that there are worker standards and labor standards and environmental standards. But then we have to restore the right of workers in America to form unions freely and to bargain collectively. That right has been destroyed over the last 25 years in this country so that workers are routinely fired for trying to form unions and bargain collectively. And 
That track of destroying workers' rights to freely form unions directly tracks a stagnant average wage for American workers. It directly tracks the lowest buying power that the minimum wage has ever had, and it directly tracks the loss of health care benefits for workers. So that now, as you know better than anybody, we've got 46 million people without health care and another 40 million with inadequate health care. And so we have to restore the right of American workers to freely form union. There is a legislative fix for this. It's called the Employee Free Choice Act. The right-wingers are attacking it because they know that when workers have the freedom to form unions, that they will do that. They will organize. And that threatens the corporate power and corporate domination of the country, and right-wingers are having a fit about it. But it is essential to having a vibrant, active democracy. Talk about the EFCA a little bit. Okay. The Lloyd Free Choice Act would do three things. It would say that when workers want to form a union, all they have to do is 50% plus one, sign a card or a petition, present it to the employer and the National Labor Relations Board for verification, and the union will be recognized. Number two, it would say that employers cannot run away from the union, that once a union is recognized, if you can't get to a contract agreement within a year of bargaining, then the union can submit it for mediation and ultimately arbitration. And number three, it would impose real penalties on employers who routinely violate the law and violate workers' rights by triple damage penalties for firing workers for union activity and the ability of workers and unions to go to court to get an injunction against an employer's illegal activity. So the bill is really simple. It just says workers should have a right to form unions and bargain collectively, and we're going to enforce that right in America. I want to ask you about that, Stuart, because sure. I often talk to my kids about the Republicans' war on the middle class. Mm -hmm. And these were rights, in fact, that workers historically did have in the United States. What are the specific ways that the Republican Party has kind of dismantled these rights that were put in place and really created the middle class in this country, which is the foundation of American democracy? I really appreciate you saying that, Bobby, because, in fact, people who worked for a living and, and made their living by the sweat of their brow and the strength of their bodies were not members of the middle class in this country until the late 1930s and 40s. The right to organize was created in this country in 1935 by the passage of the Wagner Act, and that led to the creation of the modern American middle class and something we call the American dream. We were the first country in the history of the world where average working folks could aspire to raise their kids in a middle class lifestyle. Since the late 70s, early 80s, there's been a very comprehensive, serious, strategic, intentional assault on these rights by corporate America and by their allies in the political right wing. When do you think it all started? I mean, different people trace it to different times. I personally, the easiest marker for me is Reagan breaking the PATCO strike in 1981, yeah. which signaled to the employer community and the corporate community that there was open season on unions. And Bobby and Mike, there was a time when American employers and American corporations did not want to flout national law. But you couple the lack of any real teeth in the legislation. For instance, you can threaten to fire somebody. You can change somebody's shift. You can retaliate in a number of ways against a worker for trying to organize a union. The only penalty is that you have to post a notice. If you're found guilty, you have to post a notice 
saying you won't do it again. Well, that's no effective penalty at all. Yeah, so well, I saw somewhere 23,000 workers, somewhere in that, that range, were disciplined for trying to form unions. That's but, right. Mike, it's every year for the last 15 years, more than 20,000 workers have been Incredible. disciplined for union, legal union activity every year. Over 20,000 workers. You know, one thing I think that people miss the point, that it's not just about trying to do better for people who are actually in unions. What, what it does is, is the effort to increase unions in, in this country, it benefits all workers. But you have this, you know, what, what, what makes you really angry when you look at the whole picture is this cat who's sitting out there saying, well, you know, I don't want a union caused by a guy like, you know, you know, you know the whole pitch. Right. It's, it's going to cost us money, and which is ridiculous. Unions help all the workers across the board. And, and right. explain what the connection is, because I think a lot of times that's misunderstood. Well, there's two or three very important connections. One is, who is the most organized voice for raising the minimum wage? Other than progressive Policymakers, it's the labor movement, the largest force behind raising the minimum wage. Who is the most vocal advocate for universal health care access? It's the labor movement. But beyond that, who tries to raise the wage floor and the benefit floor for all the workers in a given industry in a given area? It's the labor movement. So that employers, non-union employers, have to compete with union employers for labor. And that is an upward pull on the wages and the benefits of non-union employers. Conversely, when you weaken the labor movement, when you weaken the unions, when you weaken the power of, of workers organized together, there is a downward pull on the wages and benefits for everyone. That's why, even though our productivity has increased by 105% in the last 25 years, that's why in this period of assault on the labor movement, our average wages have remained essentially stagnant. We've increased by 2% the average wage of the American worker in the last 25 years in the face of skyrocketing CEO pay and the face of skyrocketing corporate profits and everything else. So how does Billy Bob working out there in a, you know, a trucking company, mm -hmm. how is he convinced that no, you should not organize. You should not have a union. How, how do you can? He's not how are they convinced. He's scared out of it. Our polling indicates that unions are more popular than we've been in 50 years in America, and more workers want a union today than wanted a union 10 years or 20 years ago. And not because we're perfect, far from it, but because of what's been happening in the economy. But what happens is when workers start to try to form a union. There's a $4 billion union-busting industry, legal industry in America, where these folks come in and, and train the employers and the supervisors on how to intimidate the workers, retaliate against the workers. I mean, have you the, actually seen the material where you're – Oh, actually, yeah. How, how, to train, how to train an employee or oh, employer yeah. to intimidate workers. Oh, the funny – let me tell you, the funny thing, Mike, is that they go up on Capitol Hill and they say, we've got to preserve the integrity of the secret ballot election in the workplace. But what they say to one another and the material they use with each other – is the war in the workplace, war games in the workplace, how to, how to avoid the union, how to wage war in your workplace. And that's materials that's distributed by one of the largest union-busting firms in America out of Atlanta called Jackson Lewis.
Thanks for listening, everybody. As you may have heard me say at the top of the show, this was another edition guest produced by a listener, and I want, just want to talk a little bit about that whole concept here at the end, uh, because this is a perfect example of an episode that was completely put together with clips sent in by listeners, uh, produced across the pond by another listener before being sent back to me to be finalized, and sent out to all of you and it's it's a wonderful example of this great community of effort that really keeps this show going and so i i i know that not everyone is really aware of of how it works and what all goes into it and how you can get involved but i just want to encourage you that if you're at all interested uh any and everybody's help who would be interested in getting involved would be more than welcome and so the best thing you can do is check out the forums at uh, bestoftheleftpodcast.com click the link to uh, you know there's a big banner near the top says community join etc so you can check that out look for the section labeled BOTL contributor project and if you you know read up there you know if you find what you're looking for great you know there's information and uh, you can always post questions about how to get involved or as always you can send me an email directly at hippiesympathizer at gmail.com there are links on the website to do that as well so uh, I I just I want to encourage everyone in the strongest possible terms to get involved if if you'd be interested in it Uh, basically the way it is now is there's a small number of people who do enough work on the show that they should be drawing a salary but they don't and shouldn't expect to anytime soon Uh, but what would be great is if we could spread that workload a little bit more and and get in more help so that hardly uh, hardly anyone has to do any work at all and it's it's just a big community effort so uh, if you're interested in doing that please do so and uh until next time, this is the Best of Left podcast at bestofleftpodcast.com coming to you from inside the Beltway and outside the border of Washington, D.C. And I'll talk to you guys real soon. Mm-hmm.